Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. When I was a kid, I grew up watching the old television shows of the 50s and 60s. I grew up on Hogan's Heroes, Get Smart, F Troop, Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry, all, all, all the good stuff there. And honestly, at that time, it was a good time to be a fan of those old shows. Because, you know, today, if you want to watch something, you just stream it. That's, that's what the kids do these days, trust me. But back in my day, <laughs> we had this thing called DVDs. <laughs> you see, today, if you want to actually buy a DVD, you got to pay 20 bucks and you just get the movie. Or you could buy the Blu-ray and DVD for 30 bucks and get two deleted scenes. Or you could buy the Blu-ray DVD in Ultra 4K and get about two hours of that, that's about 50 bucks. Back then, you could get a DVD set for 20 bucks, it would have 10 hours of bonus content, you were set for the next week, right? But it was right at that time when they were making all these box sets for the TV shows and the movies and the stuff, it, it, it was awesome. I remember one time in particular, I was trying to build up my Tom and Jerry DVD collection because I loved watching those old ones. So I went with my dad to Walmart in town. And I remember I saw this Tom and Jerry DVD I had never seen before. I'm like, yes, I got to get this. This is the one. This is why I'm spending my however much allowance money on, you know, like this, this is it. And I was so excited. I got back home, put it in the DVD player. I was so excited for this just to find it was one of those newer Tom and Jerry cartoons from like the 10 years before. Look, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. Like, if you try to remake any of that stuff today, it doesn't work. No Tom and Jerry, Looney Tunes. I'm sorry, if you like the new Space Jam, I apologize, but just that stuff doesn't work for me. You can't remake the old stuff. I learned a really valuable lesson that day about how disappointing it is when your expectation doesn't meet reality. You guys know what I'm talking about that? Like, you ever have something you've just built up so much expectation for that? Maybe you had some sort of a, uh, an event that you had planned, a party or something. You had all this effort and time that went to it, it just flopped. <laughs> or maybe you paid a bunch of money to go see like a sporting event or a concert or a movie and it was horrible. <laughs> like, all right, we were at the Phillies game this past Friday and I'll just say that was a game you don't want to spend money on. That was horrible, I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, something like that, or, or maybe if you're uh, a little more artistic, you tried to draw something, you have this idea in your mind of what it's going to be like, and then you look on the paper like, oh. Yeah, I see, you, you guys are nodding your head, you're looking at it, said, you've experienced stuff like that. And honestly, I think that's actually something that all of us experience from a really young age, that understanding, even if we can't explain in words, but that realization that hits you hard in the face of, I expected something, and the reality was something different. I mean, you guys ever see a baby crying over something ridiculous, like their toy got moved somewhere else, or they didn't get to watch the TV show they wanted, or, or mom and dad said it's time for bed? What happens? They're bawling their eyes out. Why? Because they didn't get what they expected. 
And I might not be able to explain that in articulate words, but ultimately, by their crying, they're saying, I expected my toy to be here. I expected to watch that TV show. I expected to go to bed in a couple hours. And when life didn't happen that way, that's why they're crying. Some of you, as adults, we just call that anger issue now. Seriously, if you struggle with that, that's what it is. You're saying life didn't happen the way I wanted it to go, and I don't know how to deal with that. And it comes out with anger. That's free, by the way. That's not part of the message. That's, that's for later. We can talk about that. But that whole idea of, of uh, expectation not meeting reality, that's something we deal with every day. We live in a world of unmet expectations. And the Bible has a word for that, because we as Christians can sometimes feel that disconnect between who we're called to be and how we are to live in this world. We know that life is supposed to work in a certain way. Maybe we don't know how to describe it, but when we see it doesn't, we're caught in between this world we live in and the world we anticipate in the future. And a lot of times we end up in one of two places. We either end up feeling guilty, like we're being too comfortable in the world, like we're enjoying too much of it in, in the movies and music and culture and food and what, and, and we get this idea of being guilty of that, or we end up so focused on the life to come that we miss out on the goodness of what we have here. We either feel, get this, so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good, or so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. And the Bible word for that struggle is exile. It's actually a pretty main focus of the Bible story. Exile is the Bible word for whenever we feel that disconnect between the way things are and the way things should be. But that being said, if I were to ask you before the service today to write down a list of words that you think uh, maybe describe a theme in the Bible, I doubt any of you would have put exile on that list. That's just not a word we use every day, is it? I mean, maybe you've heard it in church if we're talking about uh, the Jewish exile in Babylon, but that's only really one small part. Exile is a theme that once it's comprehended, it can change your understanding of the Bible and of the world itself. And so that is my humble goal here this morning, is to change the way you view the world in the next few minutes. Because of this message, I want you to begin living as an exile. I want you to feel a longing for your capital H future home while still having an appreciation for your lower H current home. My goal is to get you thinking like an exile this week, and you'll understand that as we go along here. So we've talked about exile in church in the term of uh, the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. We talked about that a little bit in our Nehemiah series we just finished up. See, you thought I wouldn't mention Nehemiah. I had to get it in there somehow. But that was because Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, they all lived at the tail end of that exile. At the end of the 70 years, they were back in the land. But in reality, exile is a theme that starts on page one of Scripture. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1 with me. Genesis records the creation account as it's told throughout Jewish history. And in verse 31, we get to the end of the creation week. I'm going to read Genesis 1:31 down through uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And I want you to envision what's going on in this story. Even if you have to close your eyes and just think about what if you were the one there to witness this? Just imagine what's going on here. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
The evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it parted and became into four heads. What a picture, right? It's beautiful. It's, well, very good. God has created man and woman, and he has placed them in this garden paradise. You know, it's kind of funny. We're used to calling them Adam and Eve. But did you realize that's not actually how the story portrays their names? If you were to read this really closely, you'd see that Adam isn't even called Adam until chapter 2. And that's because Adam is actually the Hebrew word Adam. Same spelling, just in Hebrew, but it means man or human. So every time that the Bible says Adam there, it's really just saying the man or the human. That's what his name means. Now, it, it does seem that as time went on, people actually called him Adam, but there's no definite point where it begins. Like if you read the first two chapters, you'll see that chapter 1, verse 27, uh, just says man, Adam. Then chapter 2, verse 5 says man. Verse 15, man, 16, man, 18, man. Then all of a sudden, chapter 2, verse 19 says Adam, like a proper name. And then it continues like that through the rest of the story. And you'll also see that Eve isn't even her name until after the fall. That's her post-sin name. Pretty much all the translations just call her woman. It's the Hebrew word isha. You see, Hebrew has the word Adam for man, but also has the word ish. I love saying these Hebrew words. They're so, they just, they flow right off the tongue. Try saying that with me, ish, ish. There, you just learned Hebrew. That word means man, and then isha means woman. There's, there's a little ah you can put on the end of certain Hebrew words, and it means, it's like a directional thing, out of. So this is out of man, isha, woman. So until the fall, the names of these two characters that people all around the world know, it's not Adam and Eve, it's human and female human, <laughs> male and female. Do you get the idea that they're representing all of humanity? So Yahweh plants this garden in, the, in an eastern land called Eden. And mind you, the garden wasn't called Eden, the land was Eden. It was just a garden in Eden. And it's interesting that the Bible says God planted. It doesn't say he created the garden, it says he planted the garden. I realize that's kind of semantics in a way, but planting a garden becomes important later in the story. And in fact, we're going to see one instance of that today, so just keep that thought in the back of your mind. God gave the man and the woman a commission, a mission statement in chapter 1, verse 28, as he loads this garden with potential for all kinds of incredible creativity and beauty. 
God blessed them, and he said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over everything that liveth, or over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And we usually treat this verse as a command, right? This is what God told them, go do. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it, it kind of is. But first and foremost, it's a blessing. Don't miss how the verse starts. He blessed them. It's a benediction. It's God's benediction for humanity to go out and keep creating and innovating and making very good things like he did in chapters 1 and 2. Now, I realize we can't create out of nothing like God did, but we can create with the resources he gave us. We are inventive. We're creative. Like, have you ever known someone who just had these ideas? You're like, where did that come from? Like, that is a creative person. I'm not one of those. Okay, I can do stuff with the ideas you come up with. I'm not the one who comes up with them. But there's so much that you can do with the resources God has given. I mean, think about being the first man and the first woman ever. You could be the first person to write a song. First person ever to create a musical instrument. The first person ever to think up a sports game. First person to cook a full-on meal. First person to develop a medicine. First person to design a, ah, a shovel or a wheelbarrow or, or a wheel for that matter. If there's one key word I want you to think of with the garden, it's the word potential. Potential. I used to describe the Garden of Eden as being perfect. But what I came to realize is that the Bible actually never says the garden is perfect. It never does. And that stumped me for a little while, but think about this with me. Perfect means complete. It means that nothing better could come. You can't get better than perfect, right? But the garden had a tree with temptation. It had a serpent. It, the land needed to be subdued. If you study how the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation, that implies perfection. There's no tempting trees there. There's no smooth-talking serpents there. But the garden is a jumping-off place. It's like the headquarters for continuing God's creative work through our creative acts. So the key word for the garden is not perfection. It's actually potential. Humanity has the potential to further God's creation with new inventions, new technology, new art, expansion, so much more. But there's also the potential to further chaos, disorder, and hurt through any of those things. Consider technology, for instance. When we think of technology today, we think of this, right? We think of a cell phone, maybe an iPad, a Tesla, something with computer chips in it. But at its core, technology can be described as the human activity of using tools to create or to transform God's creation for practical purposes. Never thought about technology that way before. At its core, you could say that technology is, create, is a, any creative advance in bringing order to the world. So at one point, a shovel was technology. Sounds weird to us, but it was to somebody. A piece of paper was technology. You know, you can do a lot of good with a shovel. You can also hit someone over the head with it and hurt them. You can ruin someone's lawn with it. There's a lot of good uses for a piece of paper, but you could also write hurtful words on it. This is going to take some of you by surprise, but did you realize that God loves innovation, art, and technology? It's true. 
Think about it. He's the originator of literally everything. It doesn't get more innovative, artistic, or technological than that. But with every new advance, there's a potential to use that either for good or for evil. And that is where sin and the fall come in. Sin, sin is one of those words that we have loaded up with religious connotation. You can't think of sin without thinking of church. It's just, it, it, it's a, a religious idea tied to our mind. But you have to realize that when these words first existed, if I can put it that way, they didn't have the religious connotations. Take, for example, deacon. You can't think, if you hear the word deacon, all you're thinking about is church today, right? You never hear that anywhere else. But deacon was a mundane, secular word for a servant. And then the church took that word and said, these people are serving the church. We call them deacons. As the same thing with any of these words, you kind of have to strip it of its religious connotation and just figure out what was the point of this word. One preacher said it this way, and I have never forgotten this. I was a teenager when I heard it. He said that sin is believing a lie of the devil over the truth of God. Sin is choosing to believe a lie of the devil over the truth of God. And that's true. When you boil it down, every wrong thing you do, you do it because whether consciously or usually unconsciously or subconsciously, you have determined that that action was good or tove, like we talked about with God declaring everything was good. You've decided to define good in your own eyes, even if you knew something about it was potentially not good. The immediate gratification was worth the eventual potential negative. You see, sin is a trade-off. God doesn't arbitrarily define sin. He doesn't sit up in the clouds and say, you know what, I really hate when people lie, so lying is a sin. And if that's how you view sin, your perception of God and of people is going to be really messed up. Sin isn't about just whatever God says, I don't like this, so that's what it is. God created you, and so he knows what is good for you. And he knows what will harm you in the end. The things that will harm you in the end are sin. That's what it is. We have to stop thinking of God like a helicopter parent of an 18-year-old. You know, like the kids saying, I want to watch a movie tonight. And the mom's like, you need to go to bed. All right, stop thinking of God like that. And think of God more like the loving parent of a toddler. You ever see a toddler try to touch a hot stove? He has no clue. He's just thinking, I want to learn something new. What's on top of this big black box? He might not be verbalizing it, but he is wording that the potential risk of whatever could be up there is worth learning what is up there. But what happens if an adult sees that? She's going to run over and snatch him away from that, right? He had his own idea of what was good and not good, and she had her own idea of what was good and not good. But which one was right? the adult in that case, right? Yeah. But is the kid going to understand that? <laughs> no, the toddler's probably going to be bawling his eyes out over that. Why? Because he had judged, he might not have realized it, but he had judged that whatever could be up there would be worth the risk to touch it, to find out. It's the same thing with God and us. Sin is not when we're like trying to I don't know, get a handful of candy before dinner and, and mom yells at us. Sin is when we're trying to touch the hot stove and God says, you don't want to do that. You think you do, but you really don't want to do that. 
When we decide to touch that hot stove because some vague future risk is nothing in comparison to the immediate pleasure, that's sin. God was just trying to protect you from the hot stove all along. Sin is whenever we redefine good and evil for the betterment of me or my tribe without concern for you or yours. That's what happened in the garden. See, if you're thinking of the garden as some perfect paradise where we just sat around under a palm tree relaxing, nothing ever to do, you're going to get really confused about why there was a tree of the discernment of good and evil. You're going to really have to ponder over why there was a serpent in there that wants you to eat of that fruit. But if you realize that the garden was a unique spot in all of creation, a very good creation where heaven and earth met, and where important decisions were made for ruling over that earth, then that tree begins to make a little more sense. The point of the tree was that God defined what was good and what was not good. And now humanity has the choice to decide, will I go along with God's definition, or will I choose to be selfish and define it by what is good for me, even if it hurts you? That's what the tree was about. See, the garden teaches us that God created a very good world. And believe it or not, the Bible never says that the world stopped being good after the fall. Now, we know it doesn't operate the same way, but what changed is that man and woman decided to define good and evil according to what they thought would best benefit them in the immediate future. Not the creation. Now, we know it was under the effect of the curse, but what changed was that we redefine good and evil now. And it's the same choice you and I make every single day. You say, I would never do that. You ever uh, cut someone off when you drive? You ever rush in front of someone in a checkout line because you don't want to wait behind their long cart? You ever keep money that doesn't belong to you? You ever post something on Facebook, whatever comes to mind, regardless of how someone else could perceive it? We make really bad decisions. (laughs) And it's those sort of bad decisions that led God to drive the man and the woman, now Adam and Eve, out of the garden. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way and to keep the way of the tree of life. By the way, if you have the idea of a cherub in your mind as a little baby with a halo, read that verse again. You don't want to come across one of those things. This is the first instance of exile in Scripture. And it's not about the Jewish people. God exiled humanity from the garden. This is a worldwide problem. See, you didn't realize it coming into church today, but you are all exiles from where you're supposed to be. The key word that happens now is redefine. If the key word of the garden was potential, the key word now is redefine. Genesis 3.15 sets up two types of people. Uh, and you know what? I think your outline says the key word of the exile is redefine. Scratch out exile on that part and write Babylon over it. Uh, that wasn't a fault on the office. That was me. I changed that wording up. So scratch out exile on the, the key word of the exile. The key word of Babylon is redefine. Genesis 3.15 sets up two types of people, the line of the woman and the line of the serpent, right? When it says that uh, he shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise, or he shall bruise thy heel, thou shalt bruise his head. That does not mean that there would be physical descendants of this snake 
necessarily. It means rather a metaphorical or a spiritual sense that in, every, in other words, in every decision you make, you are aligning yourself with either the purposes of the serpent or the purposes of the woman. That is the story of humanity moving forward from the garden. Every decision you make, the way you treat your kids, the way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you treat yourself, the way you treat the people at your work, it's either going to align you with the purposes of the serpent or it's going to align you with the purposes of the woman. That's the choices you have. And notice that the Bible doesn't say you have a choice between the physical and a choice between the spiritual. That's never a division that the Bible puts up. Sometimes religion sets that up. We get this idea of, oh, physical is bad, spiritual must be good, or spiritual is good, therefore physical must be bad. But God never says that. Both the line of the woman and the line of the serpent are partly physical and partly spiritual. One path, the difference, the difference is in what you choose to do with the good and evil. One path accepts God's definition of good and evil, whereas the other redefines good and evil based on what benefits you, regardless of the consequences for other people. You following on that so far? I know that's a really different way of thinking, but it's important because both of those paths lead somewhere. Following God's definition of good and evil in your life leads to the restoration of Eden on earth this recreation of the new heavens and the new earth as recorded in Revelation 21. But following the serpent's pattern for redefining good and evil on your own terms, that path ends in Babylon. And here's where the story gets really interesting. If you've been in church or uh, maybe if you're a history nerd, you're kind of familiar with Babylon, right? It was one of the first major world powers in history. It, was, uh, it had conquered most of the known world at its time. It was pretty impressive but it was also pretty oppressive in its tactics. History tells us that the Babylonian Empire started somewhere around uh, the early 600s BC. But did you realize that Babylon as a city, and more importantly as a way of life, started way earlier than that? Does anyone know the first appearance of Babylon in the biblical story? It's kind of a trick question. Turn to Genesis 10.10. After the flood, Noah's descendants repopulated the earth, and they eventually split up into family clans or tribes, or the King James calls it nations. One of those descendants was a guy by the name of Nimrod. Now today, we use Nimrod as an insult to call someone stupid, but the biblical Nimrod was no idiot. In fact, he's only mentioned four times in scripture, and he is arguably the first king in recorded history. Genesis 10, 8 to 10 says this, and Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Think they're trying to get a point across there? <laughs> and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Arek, and Akkad, and Kalneh, and the land of Shinar. What's important for us today is that little mention in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Genesis 10 and 11 reference a place called Babel. And if you were to search that Hebrew word, you would find that it's actually the Hebrew word for Babylon. Every other time Babylon appears in the biblical story, it is this word Babel. So this Babel, as we call it in English, that Nimrod built was actually Babylon. Nimrod built the first iteration of Babylon. And the Bible doesn't specifically tell us that Nimrod was a bad person, and it certainly doesn't call us, or tell us that he was an idiot. In fact, 
I, yeah, you guys are gonna love this, I have to mention this. The whole idea that Nimrod was an idiot actually comes from the 1930s here in America with Looney Tunes. Seriously, there was an episode of Looney Tunes in 1932 when Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck were arguing with Elmer Fudd and they both called him a Nimrod because he was a hunter. And so they were mocking his being a wannabe hunter. Yes, Looney Tunes referenced the Bible and then Nimrod became an insult in American culture because of that Looney Tunes episode. But the Bible has no connotation of that. What it, it seems to suggest that Nimrod was someone who chose the way of the serpent because of his building of this city. But it doesn't specifically tell us the details. There are, you guys should look it up sometime after the service. There are some really interesting tradition stories about Nimrod that popped up afterward. Uh, even, even a Wikipedia page will tell you that stuff. It's, it's kind of funny. But whether or not Nimrod was exactly how we picture him today, the Bible wants to get across that he chose the line of the serpent over the line of the woman by building this city of Babylon. Cities are a beautiful thing. I am a city boy through and through. I mean, any of my friends could tell you, you dropped me off in the city. We were in Philadelphia on Friday, and I was just I was so happy. I was in my element. I was loving it. I mean, if I drive through a city, I roll down the windows just so I can be like, I, was, I know, some of you are thinking, you're nuts, you need psychology, probably. But I love that. I mean, you drop me off in the country for three days, and I start getting anxious. Like, I can handle it on a short vacation, but more than three days, I'm like, oh, where's the city? I got to get back to people, right? Cities have good food, amen. They have businesses and headquarters and shops and stores and monuments and museums and libraries and hospitals and science laboratories, all, all kinds of amazing stuff. I mean, cities are a marvel of human ingenuity. Like, just stop and ponder a city for a second. It didn't appear. Every brick you see was built by someone. Every window pane you see, every inch of pavement, every sidewalk, every street sign, every street light. Like, where did that come? That's amazing. <laughs> they are a monument to the creative power and ability and ingenuity of the human race. But cities are also a monument to selfishness and chaos and greed, and death. More people live in cities than live in the country. I mean, that's kind of why it's a city, right? But more people in a tight space means more chances for something bad to happen. More chances for my definition of good and evil to clash with your definition of good and evil. More, def more opportunities for my benefit to be reliant on your misfortune. And that's why cities have such high crime rates, Murders, rapes, prostitution, corruption, homelessness, and so much else. I love cities. But even the best city in the world is going to have some horrible stuff that happens behind the scenes. Or at night, or maybe out in the open, depending on which city it is. That is the story of human civilization. We band together, we build cities, we build civilizations, and then we use those resources at the expense of people who were either too weak, too small, or too different to be a part of our city. That's what human civilization has done for the last 6,000 years. That's what every city does. That's what every empire and nation does. That's what corporations do today. And that is what Babylon came to stand for in the biblical narrative. Babylon became a symbol of every oppressive regime throughout history. Now that does not mean that all cities are inherently evil. It doesn't mean you can't go to Philly and get a cheesesteak. There's a lot of potential for good there that we can't overlook. There's an old saying that says you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's true. 
Don't overlook the good, but as exiles in the world, we need to recognize that while the world is very good, world systems are rarely very good. They usually involve trampling on people who don't fit in with our way of doing things. When human beings band together and make decisions, we are notorious for redefining good and evil, however benefits me, no matter what effect it has on you. And like it or not, every time you choose to put yourself over somebody else, you are aligning yourself with the priorities of Babylon. In fact, the story as a whole of humanity is the story of exile from Babylon. I told you earlier, you are in exile. Well, you are in exile in Babylon. So what do you mean? I'm sitting in New Jersey. I've never been to Babylon. What are you talking about? There's a connection between that Jewish exile we talk about so much in church in 586 BC and the exile from the garden that all of humanity experienced in Genesis 1, or, or 3 rather. The book of Genesis, we just talked about this last Wednesday night, the book of Genesis can be split up into two uneven halves, chapters 1 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 cover all of humanity. And then chapters 12 through 50 focus on the family of Abraham, how God is specifically going to get his message out to the world, to the tribes of the world. That first division, that chapters 1 through 11, that starts in the garden, it ends with humanity exiled from the garden at the Tower of, we used to say Babel, but it's Babylon, Tower of Babylon. And then chapters 12 through 50, that's the story of Abraham where he leaves, in chapter 12, he leaves Babylon to go out, but we know that later on his descendants go back in. You see the connection there. It's like Genesis 1 through 11 is setting us up as a preview, as a teaser, almost like a prequel to the rest of the story of the Bible and the human race. We know that Israel was eventually taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. That was a serious low point for the nation. The, everything that they had tied their identity to, Jerusalem, the priests, the royal line of David, the temple, the promised land, all of that was back in Israel, and now they're in Babylon. And Babylon was not a nation you would want to be taken captive by. Historically speaking, Babylon was known for a complete reindoctrination of who you were. If you were captured by them, they would change your clothes, they would change your language, they would change the way you ate, they would even change your name. And in fact, you guys already knew that because you see it in the biblical story of Daniel. When these four youths from the royal family of Judah get taken into this land and Babylon tries to change them. And by that time, there were essentially two reactions people had to Babylon. They either fought it through resistance, through violence, or they sold out to it and accepted its ways. They either tried to topple Babylon or they tried to become Babylon. But those boys found a third way. It's the way of the exile. They took on those Babylonian names. They took on those Babylonian clothes. They even worked in the Babylonian government. But if you stay out, Daniel, there are certain lines they will not cross. Yes, we will do what you want, but there's a place where we don't cross that line. And that's where the prophet Jeremiah comes in, in our main passage today. At this time of exile, there were certain so-called self-proclaimed prophets 
that popped up amongst the Israelites in captivity. And they would tell them that God was about to deliver them and they needed to be ready to fight Babylon. They were getting ready for that. But God gave Jeremiah a very different message. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. You ready for it? Build ye houses. Dwell in them. Plant gardens. Eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. Whoa. That's not what I would have expected. Like if you were one of those exiles and you heard there was a message from God to you, what would you expect? Maybe either Babylon's about to fall, get ready to fight, or maybe you messed up one too many times, just give up, you're done for. Because remember, the northern tribes never came back from captivity, so that'd be in their mind too. But neither one of those was God's message to his people. He tells them to build houses, start families, seek the peace of the city. Well, what city? Babylon. The city they were in. The city that oppresses people and does horrible stuff. We're supposed to fight against that, right? Sometimes I think, I'm going to say this carefully, but sometimes I think that we as Americans get so caught up in the fighting spirit America has had for the last 3,000 years that we forget God doesn't call us to fight every political cause. He's called us to seek the peace of the city we're in. Because through that, it is our peace as well. And don't miss that when God told them to build houses and start families, he also told them to plant what? Gardens. You think there's any connection to a garden he had planted a few thousand years back? I think so. You see, the way of the exile is to restore a little piece of Eden wherever you are and then share that blessing with the people in your circle of influence. Let me say that again. The way of the exile is to restore a little piece of Eden wherever you are right now and then share that blessing with the people in your circle of influence. The way of the exile is to enjoy the goodness of the world without bowing down to the systems of the world. It requires us to recognize that God created a good world and that there are still good things to enjoy in this age. We believe that movies and music and books and sports and games and medicine and food and drink are all good things to partake in. They can be used for good or they can be used for bad. But just because they are physical does not mean they are bad. We are not Gnostics. Sometimes we get the idea as Christians that we can't partake in anything of the world. It must be bad. Okay, well, that's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was denied as a heresy in the early church. In fact, even the Apostle John wrote a letter against it. We have in our Bibles. We don't believe that the physical world equals bad and the spiritual world equals good. We as Christians acknowledge that there are both good and bad aspects of both the physical and the spiritual world. That is why you get some verses in the Bible that encourage you to eat, drink, and enjoy life, and you get others that warn you not to love the world or the things that are in the world. Because the way of the exile is to acknowledge those two balancing truths. 
They're not opposing truths, they're balancing truths. You are not to become a cultural anorexic where you don't understand anything about the world around you or you don't partake in anything around, about the world around you, but you are not, not also to be a cultural glutton where you partake in everything of the world around you without considering it. The way of the exile is in between those two. The role of the Christian exile is to redeem and renew the world. He is not to sell out to Babylon accepting everything it produces, but he is to do his best where he is, seeking the well-being of those around him and working to redeem. See, Babylon was a very real, very physical city and empire, but it also came to mean more. In the Bible, Babylon came to stand for any human institution that demands idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. In the time of Jesus, that human institution was Rome. It was the major world power that took advantage of the poor and the weak and the disadvantaged, the outcasts of society. Rome was the new Babylon. And you might even remember a story, I believe it was Mark 12, when um, some people came to trip up Jesus and they handed him a coin and they said, what should we do with this? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, what did he say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God the things that belong to God. Well, what's the significance of that? Those coins, those Roman coins, kind of like how we have pictures of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or whatever on, on any of our coins, the Roman coins had Caesar on them. So what he was saying was, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. You might not like paying the government, but the government made the money in the first place, so don't fight it. Whose image is on you? So who do you belong to? That was Jesus' point. That was the way of the exile. It was, it was through him and through the renewal that he brings that we have this hope that we can give to others. And that's why Peter even ends his letter to the Christians spread, abo- spread abroad in 1 Peter 5.13 with the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. Babylon didn't exist anymore in the time of Peter. It had fallen to Persia hundreds of years earlier, which had then fallen to Greece, which had then fallen to Rome. There was no church at Babylon. There was no Babylon. Or was there? Because you see, Peter, he was thinking like a Jew. He was one. And he understood that all of us live in exile. And that the spirit and the mission of Babylon gets furthered. It gets carried on with each successive world power. So yeah, you might not have time traveled to Babylon today, but Babylon might have time traveled to you. Any city or nation or corporation can be like Babylon incarnate when it abuses the people under it for greater personal gain. Any human being can revive a piece of Babylon when he chooses to put himself above his neighbor. That is why Jesus gave the message, the upside-down kingdom message of putting others before yourself. It was in opposition to the message of Babylon. We are exiles in this world, working to bring back little glimmers of Eden everywhere we go. We are doing the work of the new creation. And the key word of that new creation is renewal. The hope of the exile is that one day everything will be made new again. That we'll get to see our home again. Our capital H, home. C.S. Lewis described it as the scent of a flower we have not yet found. 
For us, that doesn't mean that we get to fly away to some cloud with a harp and a halo. The end goal of Scripture is not that of leaving earth to go to heaven. We think that so many times. It's, all, it's in all of our favorite hymns, isn't it? I'll fly away, oh glory. Or, or you know, any, any of those hymns that talk about heaven, it's always this idea of the world's messed up and I can't wait to get out of here. Y'all got to deal with this, but I'm going up. That's not the end goal of Scripture. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but God's plan is actually way better than that. It's of the renewed heaven and earth coming down to us. It's not of us leaving a bad earth to go to heaven. It's of the good heaven coming down to renew earth. Look at Revelation 21 with me. This is the culmination of the exile story, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity, for you and for me. This is how our story ends. And I want you to consider this passage and then consider what you think about the future you have in eternity. And does this passage teach you that maybe you need to rethink it a little bit? This is our hope. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You ever be at a wedding and you see the bride come down the aisle? That's what you're thinking of right here. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's a little redundant to get the point across. Tabernacle means God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us, that's this. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No more sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. He that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write, because these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son, my child. Wow. What can you say to that besides amen? That's our future hope. So your job this week is to bring little glimmers of that passage into your present reality through your words and your actions. See, you can choose to redefine good and evil on your own terms according to what might benefit you most in the moment. But I'm just telling you, it's going to end you up in Babylon. And you're not going to like that. Or you can choose the way of the exile. You can enjoy the goodness of the world without bowing down to the badness of the world's systems. You can restore a little piece of Eden everywhere you go, and share that blessing with the people in your circles of influence. So as we go to prayer, I want you to consider how God has called you to live that out in your life this week. Consider the people around you, your kids, your spouse, your parents, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the person who pumps your gas at the gas station, the person who checks out the groceries at the grocery store. How can you live the way of the exile 
by bringing that future hope into their present reality this week. Heavenly Father, you have given us a hope like none other. An honest look at the world today shows that no matter what you believe, there's something messed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes we get frustrated because something deep inside us tells us that there, it's meant to be better. But I thank you for the glorious truth that you sent your son to make it better. That you sent your son not to sweep us out of a bad world, but then to give us a message that we can share with that world to make it better. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you as Savior, that through, through maybe a different way of, of considering their place in the world and, and, and of why the world is the way it is, they would see that you are the hope of it and accept you today as the answer for that. And for my friends here who already have, I pray that you would strengthen that purpose in their minds that they would see that they are here to make a difference in your good creation, in the lives of the people around them. I pray that they would enjoy the good things you've given, but not just give themselves over mindlessly to whatever might be in the world. Give us discernment, I pray. Give us wisdom and that love that you've shown us May we show it to others this week as we live out your way. In your son's name. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.